0: So good evening, Um, it's really nice to be here (coughs) with everyone and um, it's wonderful to sit in on this retreat. It's really a privilege and an honor in a lot of ways. So tonight um, is the trainee night (laughs) and um, I thought a lot about what I'd like to offer. And they say always talk about what you know. And so, I, compassion came to mind. It's something that I know about. Something that you all know about too, I'm sure. So I named this talk "Insight Compassion" because I've been thinking a lot about compassion. And it it's kind of like the basket that holds all the paramis. You know, it's the trunk of the tree and all the paramis, generosity and love and patience, they all flow out from that. But compassion isn't something that you can learn from the outside. It's not something that you can just think your way through. You actually have insight into it. And that insight grows over time. And it's profound. And so we need compassion in this practice. We need it. We've been talking a lot. Teachers have mentioned the wings of awakening, wisdom and compassion. You know, the bird, the fly. We need both of those to fly. To me, wisdom and compassion, the other teachers may disagree, but to me, they're the same wisdom and compassion. Whenever I've had great insight about a particular area, it could be impermanence or suffering or uh, egolessness, it always followed by another tremendous insight into compassion, where I immediately saw all the ways that I had been confused. So in those ways, I had hurt myself or others. So to me, they're very linked. And the deeper the insight into compassion goes, the deeper the wisdom. They're, They're opposite sides of the same coin. So insight is a deep understanding of the truth, it can be described as a radical shift in consciousness. You know, we're practicing insight meditation. So you go along, you're doing your practice, and suddenly an awareness of some deep, profound truth comes over you. And in a moment you're changed. You see things differently. And you know, you could go back to the same habits, but there's some underlying change that's happened. There's a, the start of something. And so I think that compassion fits into this. Like I said, compassion can't be forced. The near enemies of compassion are sorrow, anger, cruelty, and pity. So, learning about real compassion isn't so easy. You know, we can't, like I said, we can't learn it from the outside. I have a friend who visits me from Ireland who I met on a retreat. And she grew up in Dublin in one of these really strict uh, Catholic schools. And she said, when the, the children would all be eating, the nuns would walk around and smack them if they didn't finish their oatmeal, and say, "They're starving black babies in Africa. Eat your oatmeal." <laughs> and this was their way of demonstrating compassion. <laughs> you know, eat it, and they would, they, you know, they would be so frustrated. Starving black babies. Oh my God! And for years, it was just hitting them with these rulers, you know, getting them to eat. And she's, like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't relate to that. I didn't, you know, that was the idea of compassion, you know. And so she would tell me these stories, you know, and she traveled all over the world, and, and I said, yeah, you know, that's how we learn compassion. You're, it's like it's forced on you. Better give to the homeless people. We're good Buddhists, you know. It, it, it's like it's not real yet. And so, I want to talk about a different level of the compassion through insight. Um, because, like I said, this is what I know about right now. This is what's alive for me in my practice. Also, I've understood for myself lately that compassion, honestly, is the only wise um, response to life anymore. I just don't see any other response to suffering. I mean, we could fight it. We could try to block it out, you know, intoxicants and different techniques, but really in the end it's the compassion that allows us to uh, meet the truth. And as someone mentioned earlier, the Buddha on his night of enlightenment, you know, they say that, uh, especially uh, reading some of the stories, you know, that Mara's armies attacked and it was four miles out in this direction, four miles out, slinging, you know, fire and elephants and everything at the Buddha. And It was the compassion uh, that melted it to flowers. Adrian mentioned that this morning. And so this compassion is powerful. And I'm going to talk about different aspects of that tonight. So compassion to me I also translate as wisdom, truth, and care. It's caring. The Dalai Lama says, Love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. So let's start with how this awakening happens in ourself. There's another quote I love a lot from the uh, the Gospels. If you bring forth that which is within you, then that which is within you will be your salvation. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, then that which is within you, will destroy you." So we can see that, right? We can, we can kind of see this in our practice. So I want to tell you a little bit about one of my first insights into compassion, because it, it was profound. I was only 13 at the time, and I got in trouble. Um, I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I'd gotten in trouble. I had a very uh, difficult childhood just shipped all around and my father was not a, in the picture and um, it was just difficult so I got in trouble for stealing actually I got caught stealing out of a store and I got all these community hours so my mother was furious you know she was like you're gonna work this off and every weekend I was uh, I had to go to Glide Church as uh, she would drop me off and for some of you who are not from the Bay Area this church is in an area of San Francisco, so this was 22 years ago, very difficult. It was called the Tenderloin. It is called the Tenderloin still, um, but then it's changed a lot. It's gotten better, it's still rough, but then it was really bad. Um, there was tremendous amount of drugs, prostitution, homelessness, a lot of violence. Um, It was just an area of despair. So uh, this group of people opened this church there and started doing a lot of outreach services. And one of the first thing they did was they set up a soup kitchen. And so my mother said, well, you're going to go there. And so I showed up early one morning on a Saturday, and she said, you're going to mop and you're going to clean, you're going to feed people. And so I said, all right, you know, I'll do it. I was actually kind of excited. It seemed like a, you know, I got off and it was action everywhere. You know, I kind of liked it. It was a lot happening. Uh, and so I went into the kitchen, and I first met the staff there, and um, these were the cooks. And these were people who looked down at me, and they smiled, and you know they had missing teeth and scars, and they were alive. They had been through the depths of hell. Mm-hmm. Former addicts, prostitutes, people who had kind of crawled their way on the doorstep and and now they were clean and sober and many of them talked about Jesus came and kissed me on my cheek and woke me up and you know just stories of survival, you know, and all this love. And so I, I immediately was, you know, this is beautiful, you know, okay, here we go. So let's let's get going. So we mopped and cleaned the kitchen and it was old equipment. Everything was just given to them. And so then we said, okay, so let's get ready for the lunch. And so I'm thinking, okay, we'll have something, you know, sandwiches or whatever. So I went to the refrigerator and all it was, was packs and packs of hot dogs. So I thought, okay, and then they're like, go get the bread. So we went and got the bread, day old bread, stacks and stacks and stacks of bread that look really old. And I remember thinking, okay, this is lunch. Oh yeah, don't forget the beans giant cans of pork and beans, you know, Oh, And so we, the cooks start turn on the, you know, the heaters, these huge pots, they pour the beans in, and we, I start boiling all the hot dogs, and uh, we start getting ready. This was the lunch, and to me, that was pretty meager. You know, we didn't even have a lot, but it seemed like we had a little more for lunch than that. And so, um, you know, it got to be almost 12 o'clock, and we set up the line and, and everything, and out of nowhere, I, I You know, I didn't think a lot of people were gonna come, but I went outside and looked out of the door, and out of nowhere, there was hundreds of people in this line, and I was astounded. I thought, where are these people at? An hour ago, it was nothing. No one was there, and it was one of those cold days in San Francisco, and it was overcast and windy, and people were shivering, and the the line was coming, and so my job was to scoop the beans on their plates at these little styrofoam plates, And they would go through the line, they would get, the cook said, okay, you get two hot dogs, two pieces of bread, and two scoops of beans. So I would scoop the beans on. And so people started coming, the line was going really fast. And um, I noticed that everybody looked so sad. You know, here I was smiling, you know, thinking I'm, you know, I'm here, I'm excited, you know, I'm serving. But nobody looked at me, they all had their heads down. You know, and, um, I was struck by that. So the line just kept coming, kept going. I, I remember at one point I stopped and went outside and there was still so many more people way down the street. And so we started running out of food. So the cook came out, he said, one hot dog, one piece of bread, one scoop of beans. And so there was like a sense of desperation here. I was like, oh no, you know, people are getting less and less and people were coming through and they even had kids and their clothes were tattered and they looked sad and their hair wasn't combed and, and it, it got less and less. So then he came out and he said, half a hot dog, half a piece of bread, and we ran out of food. And there were still people and so they had to tell the people, you know, there's no more food, sorry, that was it. And so I sat and I watched people for a long time. And then later that afternoon, after we had cleaned up, I went out on the curb and I started sobbing I just, I just thought, this is not right. And it, what struck me the most about this situation was how much I cared. I cared about these people that I did not know. I cared that they didn't get the meal. I cared about the kids. I cared that it was cold. I cared, I wondered where they went after this. Like, What was their lives like? And I sobbed. It was just gut-wrenching for me. And that was a huge insight into compassion because I cared about people I didn't know. I had never felt like that. I'd seen people in my neighborhood all the time, but it was something about the number of people and the, the need just for a meal. It struck me. And I, I was changed after that. But of course I went on with my life, you know. I worked there for a few more weeks, had similar experience, and then I went on with my life. But something deep within me, a seed, had been planted. And it was a, it was a big wake up in a lot of ways. So to me, compassion is care. I care. I care about these people. I care about you. I care about people that I don't know. I feel connected. And that's the word I always use. Compassion is real care. So in this practice that we're doing here, we're learning how to care about our own pain. Right, you're here on the cushion. I just sat for three months. I know what it's like. So many things come up, you know, they say the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And sometimes those sorrows can just rain down. I remember feeling just weighed down, uh, everything unleashed. And I would sit in the middle of that and I would think, okay, here I am. I've got to care about this pain. I've got to care. And I started to do that more and more, work with that. They say that compassion lives in wise resonant with the tender and painful aspects of life. As the heart opens with acceptance, it becomes large enough to hold our own suffering with increasing truth and respect. And there is something about sitting here and respecting it. Now, this is our process. This is what's true, the heartbreak, the losses, the humiliation. With growing compassion, there's less shame associated with the truth of suffering. We're all dealing with this. We're not alone at all. The belief that we were somehow punished goes away, you know, when we can meet it, when we can care. It doesn't matter what happened, who caused it. It's that I care about it. I didn't care about how those people wound up in that line. That's a, it didn't matter. Mattered that I cared, and I wanted to help alleviate that. Compassion helps us to move forward. It frees us. When we can't meet our experiences with compassion, we somehow freeze up. We we shut down. We become paralyzed. We can't. There's an inability to move forward. People who aren't able to grieve for the past, for the wounds, they still stay stuck in them. Paralyzation is a big one. That sense of being paralyzed. So in meditation we learn to meet this mind. So we have so many painful thoughts that come up. You know, I had a really difficult childhood. My father was an addict. Um, for years he was addicted to cocaine and so when I was a child his behavior was very erratic. You know, he was agitated and coming in and out and fighting with my mother and causing a lot of problems. and. Um, I lived in South Central Los Angeles and so there was always helicopters and people outside and I was never really allowed to go outside so I my sister and I would look out of the windows like this watching all the action go on and going, oh my god, there was so much happening in just our apartment building, Um, you know, and so a lot of these memories of sad things I had seen and the pain of my mother and my grandfather and my, my own father, and it would, I would, it would all come up. It was just there, churning in. How could I meet this? All the memories, emotions, the trauma. So we have to bear witness to this. We have to sit through this like the Buddha. All the tears. We learn. When we're not able to meet these experiences, we explode. You know, people explode, they implode from within, they explode from outside. One of the things that I do a lot that I'd like to just show you for a moment is for just one moment, just close your eyes. And I want you to just think of something that's difficult that you might be going through in this moment, maybe something that you experienced today. Some difficulty in your life, it could be anything, uh, separation, a loss and of someone who's no longer here. And I want you to take your right hand and grab your left hand and hold your own hand and say, I care about this pain. I care about this. I care about this. So you can open your eyes now. But that's what I do. That's what I've done for years. I care. Whenever I'm in a moment where I'm overwhelmed and I feel emotional, I often grab my hand and think, I care about this. I don't understand, but I care. And that movement toward myself is amazing. Just that compassion allows me to open to whatever's happening in a real way. You know, it's like, I could be with this. Okay, what's happening? Anxiety, fear, panic, or heartbreak. We're all in this together. We're constantly seeking happiness but doing the things that create suffering. That's our samsara. That's the great burden we all share. You know, wanting liberation but still doing the same things that create more suffering. How could we not have compassion for that predicament? We're all doing it together. (laughs) We reinforce it together. (laughs) I like this little, uh, Joseph Campbell had this little commentary in one of his books. He wrote about the Buddha. As Buddha observed the workings of his mind, he realized how one craving after another took possession of his heart. He noticed how human beings were ceaselessly yearning to become something else, go somewhere else, acquire something they do not have. Blinded in our desires, we almost never see things as they are in themselves. But our vision is colored by whether we want them or not, how we can get them, or how they can bring us profit. These petty cravings assail us hour by hour, minute by minute. We feel no rest. We are constantly consumed and distracted by the compulsion to become something different than what we are in this present moment. But the good news is, it sounded like a little dire, you're here, we're waking up, we're all doing this together, we're coming back. We're freeing ourselves. I love that word freedom. I love that word. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember we're getting free. I would like to read you one of my favorite poems. I'm sure many of you have heard it because it brings me to the next aspect uh, about compassion. So we begin with compassion for ourselves and then it moves out to others. You know, we start and then we move out, widening circles, kind of like the metta. You know, we start with ourselves and then we start including groups of people. Compassion is the same way. So it's called Please Call Me By My True Names by Thich Nhat Hanh. I'm sure some of you have heard this poem, but take it in again, it's a little long, but it's powerful and it's meaningful. I wanna first read you a little bit of the commentary that he wrote um, as he was uh, developing the poem. So Thich Nhat Hanh writes, for many of you, I'm, I'm assuming you know he's a uh, Buddhist Zen master activist, He's in his late 70s now, written many books. Um, He's one of my most powerful teachers through his writings and his work. So he writes, I have a poem for you. This poem is about three of us. The first is a 12 year old girl, one on the boat people crossing the Gulf of Siam. She was raped by a sea pirate and after that she threw herself into the sea The second person is the sea pirate, who was born in a remote village in Thailand. And the third person is me. I was very angry, of course, but I couldn't take sides against the sea pirate. If I could have, it would have been easier, but I couldn't. I realized that if I had been born in his village and had lived a similar life, economic, educational, and so on, it is likely that I would now be that sea pirate. So it's not easy to take sides. So out of my suffering, I wrote this poem. It's called, Please Call Me By My True Names, Because I Have Many Names. And when you call me by any of them, I have to say yes. So he writes, Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I'm still arriving. Look deeply. Every second, I'm arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of a river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am that pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I'm a member of the Polito borough with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and my laughter at once so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up, so the door of my heart can be left open, the door to compassion. So we start to wake up when we realize that everything is inside of us, we are everything, it's all in this mind. We start to engage differently in the world with less judgment, with less criticism. Compassion can also free us from this obsessive ego clinging. Have you noticed that? <laughs> this obsessive sense of self always there, obsessing on our own story, you know, again and again chewing it over and over, the same thoughts. When we focus on others, helping others, there's a certain that we let go of that story, the burden falls. That's why a lot of people love to serve and do volunteer work. It gets them out of themselves on something bigger. You know, there's something so much bigger than that little story. John last night talked about it being the box, and we keep banging up, you know, back and forth. I'm sure you felt like that, banging in there. So, the more we practice, the more insight we have into the truth of this interconnectedness. And this interconnectedness is what I'd like to also talk a little bit about. Interconnectedness is a worldview which sees a oneness in all things. All things are of a single underlying substance and reality. There's no true separation deeper than mere appearances. We are all a part of this universal oneness, human family. And so the Buddha talked a lot about that. He talked about that we're all together. I like this little piece, the Dalai Lama writes, He says, ultimately, the reason why love and compassion bring the greatest happiness is simply that our nature cherishes them above all else. The need for love lies at the very foundation of human existence. It results from the profound interdependence we all share with one another. However capable and skillful an individual may be, left alone, he or she will not survive. However vigorous and independent one may feel during the most prosperous periods of life, When one is sick, or very young, or very old, one must depend on the support of others. Interdependence, of course, is a fundamental law of nature. Not only highly forms of life, but also many of the smallest insects are social beings who without any religion, law, or education, survive by mutual cooperation based on an innate recognition of their interconnectedness. Yeah, you seen ants (laughs) (laughs) work together? The most subtle level of material phenomena is also governed by interdependence. All phenomena, from the planet we inhabit to the oceans, clouds, forests, flowers that surround us, arise in dependence upon subtle patterns of energy. Without their proper interaction, they dissolve and decay. It is because our own human existence is so dependent on the help of others that our need for love lies at the very foundation of our existence. Therefore, we need a genuine sense of responsibility and a sincere concern for the welfare of others." So, I actually do a practice one of my teachers gave me that whenever something happens to me, this is one of my Tibetan teachers, that so say I have a toothache or or anything, I ima- immediately think of all the people in the world who also have a toothache in that moment. Just imagine, there are only like thousands of thousands. And that immediately takes me out of my own experience, like, oh, we're in this together. It's all the beings who have toothaches. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> May we all be free, you know? with all the beings who have a pain in their lower back right now, or have a migraine, or feel frustrated, or hungry, or irritated. Imagine connecting to that. And it helps me. Every time I feel sorry for myself, I feel this heartbreak at the end of something. I think, oh, the beings will have a heartbreak right now, and immediately it's like, yes, we're all in this together. May we all be free, and a lightness comes over me. I like this other quote. It's so true, more about this interconnectedness. So many people have understood this over the years. This is by Dr. Martin Luther King. In a real sense of all life, In a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. He wrote that in 1965. That's profound. He understood this, you know. He wasn't a Buddhist. He got it, and what he was doing was for everyone. You know, may I walk into this hell for a heavenly cause, for all of our liberation. A true bodhisattva. Joanna Macy, a teacher and ecologist, writes that our lives are inextricably interwoven as the nerve cells in the mind of a great being. I like that. Interwoven as the nerve cells in the mind of a great being. So when we sit here and we're healing ourselves, we're healing the world in a lot of ways. We're we're healing for all of us. Remember that. It let it draw strength from that. I do. Our practice is often about letting go, so much letting go, so much letting go, fears and anxiety. The practice of compassion allows for sustained and unobstructed presence of mind as the darker side of life is lifted into the light of awareness. Thich Nhat Hanh, one of my other favorite poems by him, he writes more about interconnectedness. He writes, you are me. I thought John was gonna read this last night. He says, you are me and I am you. It is obvious that we inter-are. You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you don't have to suffer. I support you. You support me. I'm here to bring you peace. You are here to bring me joy. So it's this idea that we're all in it together. You're me, I'm you, we're here. How can we get along? This is one planet, one place. Can we see each other? The separation is so painful. That sense of separation is so painful. But the sense of the truth that we're all connected, it can bring a a beauty back into life. You're not alone. We're here. It's the deluded mind that sees separation. It's the deluded mind that would say, oh, you're different. You speak a different language, or your skin is dark, or or, or whatever. It's so much beyond that. Albert Einstein wrote, our task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. Ah, even the scientists. (laughs) The scientists understood. So I found this little story that I like a lot. I'll try to hold it up. It's called Faith, the Two-Legged Wonder Dog. I'm going to put this on the altar in the back uh, so you can take a look at it. I love animals a lot, so I'm a dog person. I'll read the story, and there's photos. And like I said, you can take a look through it. So Faith, the two-legged wonder dog, this dog was born on Christmas Eve in the year 2002. He was born with three legs, two healthy hind legs and one abnormal front leg, which needed to be amputated. He, of course, could not walk when he was born. Even his mother did not want him. His first owner also did not think that he could survive. Therefore, he was thinking of putting him to sleep. By this time, his present owner, Judy Stringfellow, met him and wanted to take care of him. She is determined to teach and train this dog to walk by himself. Therefore, she named him Faith. In the beginning, she put Faith on a surfing board to let him feel the movements. (laughs) So this dog has no arms, just two back legs. Later, she used peanut butter on a spoon as a lure and a reward for him to stand up and jump around. Even the other dogs at her house helped to encourage him to walk. Amazingly, only after six months, like a miracle, Faith learned to balance on his two hind legs and jump to move forward. After further training in the snow, he can now walk like a human being. And so there's a picture of him kind of. You gotta see this. There's even a YouTube video. Faith loves to walk around. No matter where he goes, he attracts all the people around him. He now has become famous on the international scene. He's appeared in various newspapers and TV shows. There's even a one book entitled With a Little Faith being published, (laughs) all about him. He was even considered to appear in one of the Harry Potter movies. His present owner, Judy Stringfellow, has given up her teaching and plans to take him around the world. (laughs) This is the sweet part, to preach, that even without a perfect body, one can have a perfect soul. And there's all these pictures of faith in airports and playing with little kids and hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> Every life is so important. So I like that story a lot. It just reminds you, you never know what you're gonna get. You never know where you could go with your life. Even in this moment, you might feel so beat down by the mental pain or whatever's happening. You don't know where you're gonna rise up out of, where you could end up. I love stories like that. So the other part of compassion I wanna talk about is the courageous aspect. You know, I notice that people in Buddhist circles, you hear compassion a lot, even in other traditions, you know, Christianity. And sometimes I could feel like there's kind of a weakness to it oh, the compassion. Eh, compassion is powerful, it's strong. It's the strongest emotion out there, compassion. Uh, it's strength. It was the only thing that could overcome Mara. Think about it. Compassion is not weak, it's strong. To be on this path we have to be brave to sit here day after day and face whatever it is that has happened in your life, you know, whatever it is we've done or or we experienced as a child or whatever we're ashamed of. We have to sit and be with it. It's the truth. It happened. Things happened. It takes courage to do that. I wrote that one time I wrote this talk saying compassion is not for wimps. <laughs> you know, our greatest spiritual leaders possessed the most compassion. They were fearless. Think of them, Dr. Martin Luther King and Gandhi and activists from all over the world, completely filled, motivated by pure compassion, unwilling to endure. It's powerful. Our suffering. Uh, can make us strong. We can use what we've experienced to become stronger. You know, many of the things I experienced as a child, you know, abuse and and other things, you know, as they've come up in my mind and i work with healing them, they've made me stronger. You know, I can really say, yeah, those were blessings. Those were blessings now. We can use that material. Life is not, it's happening for us, not to us. And that's a big shift that I have come to uh, understand, That is for us. I want to read you another story. Stories are good, you know, good stories. For people who know me, they know I tell a lot of stories. I teach teen retreats. And late at night, sometimes we do story time. And they get all in their sleeping bags. And they look so sweet. But this one's a, um, a Jataka tale. It's called The Brave Little Parrot. So this is about strength. We need strength uh, to endure, need strength in our practice. And so the Jataka tales are, uh, some of you may not know, are the stories of the the Buddha's past incarnations when he was animals. So you see them about elephants and deer, and uh, so this is one where uh, he was a parrot. So once long ago, the Buddha was born as a little parrot. One day a storm broke out upon her forest. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and a dead tree, struck by lightning, burst into flames. Sparks leapt on the wind, and soon the forest was ablaze. Terrified animals ran wildly in every direction, seeking safety from the flames and the smoke. Fire, fire, cried the little parrot. Run, run, run to the, win- run to the river. Flapping her wings, she flung herself out into the fury of the storm, and rising higher, flew toward the safety of the river. But as she flew, she could see that many animals were trapped, surrounded by the flames below, with no chance of escape. Suddenly, a desperate idea, a way to save them, came to her. She darted to the river, dipped herself in the water, and flew back over the now raging fire. The heat rising up from the burning forest was like the heat of an oven. The thick smoke made breathing almost unbearable. A wall of flame shot up now on one side, now on the other. Crackling flames leapt and danced before her. Twisting and turning through the mad maze of fire, the little parrot flew bravely on. At last, over the center of the forest, she took her wings and released the few drops of water which still clung to her feathers. The tiny drops tumbled like jewels down in the heart of the blaze and vanished with a sss. Then the little parrot once more flew back through the flames and the smoke to the river, dipped herself in the cool water and flew back again over the burning forest. Back and forth she flew time again and again from the river to the forest, from the burning forest to the river. Her feathers were charred, her feet were scorched, her lungs ached, her eyes stung by smoke burning red as coals, her mind spun as dizzily as the spinning sparks, but still the little parrot flew on. At this time, some of the devas, gods of the happy realms, were floating high overhead in their cloud palaces of ivory and gold. They happened to look down and they saw the little parrot flying through the flames. They pointed at her with perfect hands between mouthfuls of honeyed foods. They exclaimed. Look at the foolish bird. She's trying to put out a raging forest fire with a few sprinkles of water. How ridiculous, how absurd, and they laughed. But one of those gods did not laugh. Strangely moved, he changed himself into a golden eagle and flew down toward the little parrot's fiery path. The little parrot was just nearing the flames again when the great eagle with eyes like molten gold appeared at her side. Go back, little bird, said the eagle in a solemn and majestic voice. Your task is hopeless. A few drops of water can't put out a forest fire. Cease now and save yourself before it's too late. But the little parrot only continued to fly on through the smoke and the flame. She could hear the great eagle flying above her as the heat grew fiercer, calling out, Stop, foolish little parrot. Save yourself. Save yourself. I don't need a great shining eagle, coughed the little parrot, to give me advice like that. My own mother, the dear bird, might have told me such things long ago. Advice, cough, cough. I don't need advice. I just, cough, need someone to help. <laughs> and the god, who was the great eagle, seeing the little parrot flying through the flame, suddenly, of his own privileged kind, he could see them floating high up above. Yes. They were there, the carefree gods still laughing and talking while many animals cried out in pain and fear from among the flames below. Seeing that, he grew ashamed, and a single desire was kindled in his heart. God, though he was, he just wanted to be like the brave little parrot and help. I will help, he exclaimed, and flushed with these new feelings, he began to weep. Stream after stream of sparkling tears poured from his eyes. Wave upon wave, they washed down like the cooling rain upon the fire, upon the forest, upon the animals, and upon the little parrot herself. Where these tears fell, the flames died down and the smoke began to clear. The little parrot, washed and bright, rocketed out of the sky, laughing for joy. Now that's more like it, she exclaimed. (laughs) The eagle's tears dripped from the burned branches and soaked into the scorched earth where those tears glistened. New life pushed quickly forth, shoots, stems and leaves, buds unfurled and blossoms opened, green grass pushed up from among the still glowing cinders. All the animals looked at one another in amazement. Washed by those tears, they were whole and well. Not one had been harmed. Up above in the clear blue sky, they could see their friend, the little parrot, looping and soaring in delight. When hope was gone, someone, she had saved them. Hooray, they cried. Hooray for the brave little parrot and the sudden miraculous rain. (laughs) (laughs) The end. (laughs) Little Dharma story. (laughs) So we take some courage, yeah? Some bravery. Of course the parrot was the Buddha, yeah. Developing his parami. That's the point of the Janaka's tales, that he developed courage over lifetimes and lifetimes. So, you know, or or, uh, love and compassion. You know, practicing. Where can we be courageous? Where can we practice? Sitting here maybe another hour with whatever it is that we got to deal with. So, the final thing about This compassion is that we can open to everything because we also have the wisdom piece. Yeah, that it's all impermanent, that whatever it is that we're going through, it has a life cycle. You know, so we can touch things much closer. You know, we can get us really close to a situation because we recognize it's impermanent. All wars end, all disasters, fires go out, you know, it rains again. We have to remember that in those dark nights that the sun comes up, you know, the sun does come up. So, I also wanted to say allow compassion to make you strong. You know, our community needs us, we need us, taking our own hand. Once we practice this and we can take the hand of someone else, right? We can help them, we're not afraid because we weren't afraid in ourselves. You know, once we can open to the depths of our own pain, it's, we can sit for other people, we can hold other people. You know, I talked about the teen retreats, there's even some staff here. You know, a lot of times during the retreat, there's a place in the middle where all the teens start crying, having meltdowns. <laughs> and there was this one retreat where we were just holding them one after another after another, you know, the shirt's wet. And you can just be there for it. This is life unfolding, you know. And then two hours ago, they're blissed out. Isn't that how it is? One day in the morning, or it's just hell, sobbing, crying. Oh, it's lunch now. The sky is out. I mean, it, the joy is we have to remember we can get close because it doesn't stay like that. That the joy is coming, it's the the night ends the dawn, that the new day is always there. So with my last few minutes, I want to just add on another piece that's really important. That also, as I look at these statues, that's Prajnaparamita, the the mother of the Buddhas, she's called, that there's also this universal sense of compassion that I've tapped into more and more. It's, a, it's the great mother compassion that there's something that's holding all of us, that we can the, sort of rest in that there's a bigger compassion out there. There's mine, for myself, for humanity, and then there's something that's another widening circle around us all. And um, it envelops us and heals us. You know, we can rest in the compassion. That, I don't know how to describe it without seeming uh, corny. Or, but it's the, it's, the, it's like the, it's the Great Mother. There's there's a bigger compassion holding us. The Dalai Lama uh, was, a few years ago, he told a story in one of his teachings, uh, that he was giving teachings in Bodh Gaya about five years ago. And in the middle of it, he was suffering excruciating pain and actually had to get up from the teachings. Many of you may have known about this. And he got rushed to the hospital. This was in Bodh Gaya. And um, It happened that he actually had a hole uh, in his lower intestine, and so he had surgery. Um, But he said he was on the way. You know, they were racing him to the hospital because it was just they'd never seen him like this, and he was doubled over in excruciating pain. But he said on the way to the hospital, as they were going, he was in the back seat of the car, looking out of the window, sort of in agony. But he saw this little boy who had polio and uh, was pushing a bike. He had like polio on half his body, and and His Holiness said, I could tell he was not well cared for. He was probably a um, you know, homeless child. And he was pushing this bike along um, that had a flat tire. And, and, um, and the Dalai Lama said at that moment, his heart went out to him. He started doing compassion practice for him. It was like, ah. Oh. And he said he felt no more pain. That was it. It was gone. There's power in compassion. You know, there's something bigger. There's something healing. I guess I say this so you can have faith in this, that there's something that we can rest on, that we can lay on. In some of my darkest moments, I felt these big black arms surround me like the great Earth Mother, you know? And I could just lay back and go, all the tears we've all shed over eons. It's like there's some great energy holding all of that. It's like, yes, this is the wake up. We're waking up. It can hold it. And you know these images of the mother in every culture. You know, if you travel in South America, even the most machismo men, you know, will have these big altars to the Mother Mary. Mary, (laughs) you know, crying like little babies. You know, it's like that's the mother. You know, it's Green Tara, it's Kuan Yin, and other. It's you know the Hindu uh, goddesses, and there's this there's this love that that represents. And I'm not saying it's the it's an aspect of the feminine, but it's in all of us. It's masculine and feminine. It's a deep truth, and so take faith in that, that you can open and you can be held in that. This is something I've awakened to. I've experienced directly this, like I can open, I can open, there's something bigger holding me, these bigger arms. Um, so I wanted to put that in. It's, it's a little like a myth, but it's something very real in that. We have to have faith that they were going somewhere, that we can open, it's leading somewhere. It is, this is the path, it's onward going. I wanna read you one more thing. Um, It's called The Road to Damascus, I like it. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. Those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus." You know, there's some parts like, you know, we trust that we're being led into something. You know, we're here together trust this Sangha. Have respect for these people around you. They're your deep souls, all of us. So in conclusion, compassion is care. We care about ourselves. We care about our pain. You're not alone. Remember that in any moment. You're not alone. The Buddha went through these things. All of us are going through these things together. You can do it. We can do it. We can heal together. So I want to read you one final thing. I don't know if it goes, but I like it. Yeah, but... <laughs> it's by Maya Angelou, so she can give you a little courageous effort. Well, it's one of my favorite poems, and when I was going through a deep period of healing and feeling really beaten down by a lot of shame, I would read it. It's called uh, Still I Rise. One of my favorite poems Maya Angelou has ever written, actually. So she writes, You may write me down in history With your bitter, twisted lies You may trod me in the very dirt But still, like dust, I'll rise Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I got oil wells Pumping in my living room. <laughs> Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head, lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Because I laugh like I got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide. Swelling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear. I rise, bringing the gift, the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and hope of the slave. I rise. I rise. I rise. So let's just sit for a couple moments, maybe. May you all experience the liberation that comes through insight into compassion.